This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the OneTrust team for their support. Okay, Michael, I've got a little game for us. I'm going to give you a quote, and you can tell me who said this famous phrase. All right, let's do it. If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Okay, um, I know you want me to say Henry Ford on this, <laughs> but I don't believe he actually said that. Um, but for the sake of the game... Henry Ford. Okay. All right. We're, we're getting into technicalities here. <laughs> but yes, good job. All right. How about this one? It's not the customer's job to know what they want. Um, it's along the same lines. This is a more recent one. I think it's from Steve Jobs. Very good. All right. Two for two. You nailed it. And these link to today's episode, I'm assuming. So what do we have today? An episode on why we actually don't need to involve our customers in decision making for our products. What? No. Okay. No, no, no. It's it's actually the opposite. Henry Ford, Steve Jobs, they 
might hate today's episode because <laughs> it's all about involving our customers. We're going to be talking about rapid research that we can do as product people. And this episode starts right now. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So this is an episode that Henry Ford and Steve Jobs would hate you say. And before <laughs> everyone hits stop, I think you should clarify. Well, you know what? I, maybe that's not true because, you know, we're, we're talking about rapid research, ways that we can learn from our customers and integrate it into the product decision making process. But we're not talking about asking customers what they want. We're simply talking about learning from them. So I don't know. Maybe Steve and Henry, they would have liked it after all. Steve and Henry. It sounds like you go way back, right? But <laughs> okay. This sounds like a good focus. Let's let's do it. All right. I think so. I think so. And, and you know, to help us dive into this topic, uh, don't have Steve Jobs or Henry Ford with us, but we do have <laughs> Sarah Duty. And I had this conversation with Sarah Duty a while back, and, and she's great. She's spoken at industry in the past. She's put on workshops with us in person, some virtual workshops. She teaches a great set of UX courses for UX professionals. Um, and she's just a great person to guide us on this topic of rapid research. All right. Well, let's start there. Rapid research. What do we mean by that? Well, let's hear it from Sarah. Here she is talking about what research is all about and why it's so meaningful to her. This topic of research really is near to me because when I uh, was much earlier in my career, I was working in a couple of different startups and we did not invest in research. Um, and those companies are not around and they wasted a lot of time, a lot of money and made a lot of mistakes because we didn't do really any research. So if you, know, you are at a company where maybe you don't have budget for research or time or you get a lot of pushback I would really just encourage you to think about kind of the side effects of not doing research because ultimately, in my example, you know, we wasted weeks, probably months building features that no one wanted or raising money and then ultimately having the company, you know, not exist anymore. I think not doing customer research would kind of be like being a doctor and having someone like come into the office and maybe you just look at them and then make some decisions about what to do with that person rather than like looking at their lab results or asking them questions and things like that. Um, but I think as soon as you can flip the switch from not doing research to doing research, you'll realize like the treasure trove of information that you're getting from your customers. Um, with honestly not as much time, effort, money as you think. Um, and I'd also say, I think based on all the research projects I've done, every time I do a research project, the client is always surprised because something that they thought or had assumed is completely proved opposite or shot down from the research. It, just, it happens over and over and over. So we as product people should be involved in doing research. It's a good thing. But what does that actually look like? What are the things that we should be doing? Well, you could get started in a number of places, really, right? Like big, giant focus groups. Well, 
yes, you could. Uh, <laughs> and Sarah actually recalls experiences like this, but there are also a lot of other things that you can do, a lot of less expensive things. Uh, let's go back to Sarah here. A kind of analogy of these companies from earlier in my career when I hadn't even done research, to be honest with you. Uh, I remember one of the companies did try to do research and it was very high budget, very labor intensive. And that was um, hiring a recruiting company to find people to talk to, renting a big uh, kind of research room lab, if you will, with, you know, glass windows or mirrors and ordering cheap Chinese food and hiring a moderator and all this. And that, I don't know the budget, but it was a lot. There were many sessions uh, conducted, so it must have been a crazy line item on the budget. But I think that's what people assume when they hear about research. And you can do you know, expensive research, but concerning the spectrum of you know, low budget, fast, et cetera, all the way to these more formal projects, some of them could be like just going and talking to your customer support team. That is free, that's in your building or on Slack. And those people, even though they don't have research in their title, just off the top of their head, they probably have a ton of insights about people's problems, suggestions, um, objections to like, why aren't they purchasing, et cetera. Another one I really love is kind of doing social media listening. So if I'm doing a research project for a company, one of the things that I'll do is just go to Twitter and like type in the company name, or if it's more of a topic like planning a family reunion or running a 5k or something, I might just type that into or variations of that into Twitter, into Facebook, into YouTube and see what topics, questions, et cetera, come up. Cause that's going to give you clues, especially if you're more on the exploratory side of thing um, versus like doing usability testing for a product and market. But you could also use that same strategy of listening to kind of content that's already out there by maybe going and reading Amazon reviews or iTunes reviews or App Store reviews. Maybe just Google that product name to see if there's been any blog posts written about it or reviews or articles or do this for your competitors as well. Okay, interesting. So sometimes when people think about doing customer research, they think of these big drawn out expensive activities like conducting some giant focus group behind a double mirror with a team of people watching. But it doesn't have to be like that. Simply reading Amazon reviews for competitive products, conducting a social media search around the problem we're trying to solve. This is customer research. And these are activities that we could and should be doing as product people, not looking for magic answers on what product we should build, but to understand the customer pain points more. Exactly. Exactly. And I love some of these suggestions because they're simple. Anybody can do them. We don't have to be full-fledged researchers to be doing these. Listeners can literally stop listening to this podcast and start doing these things right now. Well, after the episode anyway, but you get it. You bring up a good point though. Many of our listeners aren't full-fledged researchers. They're product people, but we're saying that those product people should be doing these things even if their company has dedicated researchers, right? I think so. And and here's Sarah with more on that. If we take a step back and think, can who can benefit from developing the skills of someone that has researcher in their title? And the answer to that, in my opinion, is everyone. Because even if you are not talking to 
you know, customers or potential customers or conducting usability testing sessions and things like that. If you can learn to be um, a better listener, learn to kind of see problems below the surface, be able to ask really probing questions, start learning how to connect the dots and spot insights and things like that, that's gonna help you in your day-to-day -day role because maybe you're not doing research or applying research techniques to users and things. You can still apply them to clients, colleagues, other teammates, etc. So if you don't have research in your title, I would say, you know, this afternoon, if you're in a meeting, try and start becoming a better listener so that you can ask more pointed questions to kind of start peeling back the layers of whatever topics are kind of coming up, if that makes sense. Okay, let's take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors. Before the break, we started digging into what research actually means and how we ought to be incorporating it into our work as product people. We've been learning all about this from Sarah Duty, an actual UX researcher and designer and someone who knows a lot about the topic. We started getting into some simple things that we could do to research our customers better. But Sarah brought up another form of research that I personally really love. Another one that I really, really like right now is creating communities for either just people interested in your kind of general topic or your actual customer base. But I've seen a couple of companies doing this, either having their own Slack group, Facebook groups. And the cool thing about that is it's an amazing uh, just kind of place to collect feature ideas, problems, et cetera. But it can also help reduce your customer support because your customers, naturally, there will be a couple of people that bubble up and start like kind of being advocates and they'll just hop in and answer questions. Communities. Yes. I know why you like this one, Mike. Yes. Yeah. We have our own product community, product collective. And I totally agree with Sarah. I mean, it's a great way for us to be learning from our customers. I mean, literally, there have been times where we wanted quick feedback on something and all I had to do was post a question or comment in our Slack and I'd get people responding almost instantly. And Sarah knows this firsthand. She operates her own communities, actually, right? It's interesting because a lot of people think, oh, I'll have a community just for my paying customers. And I definitely agree with that. I have a couple of communities for my own products. I have some products related to kind of UX careers and UX portfolios and job interviews and things. So I have one community that's only for people who have paid for some of those things. But I have another community that is free to join you don't have to pay for anything. And that's really useful because it's kind of a Petri dish for me to be testing blog post ideas or um, Facebook Live topics or just also seeing what content people are referring to each other in the group to give me ideas of what's working, what topics are hot, et cetera. Um, and maybe someday, someday those people convert to customers but if not, they're still getting a ton of value for me, and that's going to pay me back in the future in some way. There are many reasons why creating a community can create value, but the research part of it, it's a big one. So it's a good reminder here for sure. So we're talking about the things that we can be doing, but when do we actually put it all into action? When do we start making a real product decision after doing this research? Ah, yes, that is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Right. Like, 
Is there some sort of objective way to determine this, or is it more subjective? Well, Sarah? It's subjective, and you kind of have to, like, apply or apply your right brain a little bit and think to yourself, when does it feel like we have enough uh, patterns that are so stand out that we feel confident that we should move ahead with this. So if you only, well, if your product, you know, is already in market and you have 30,000 users or something, only talking to five of them might not be enough of a sample. If, if a pattern emerges from two out of five, like, I don't think that's enough. So you kind of have to balance it with what's your user base, um, and how strong are the insights that you're developing. But I would say one great tip that I always recommend to my clients is do a survey before you start doing any one-on-one interviews and things like that, because a survey is a great way and fairly inexpensive to cast a a really wide net to see some of those patterns start to emerge and then you can identify some potential good people to contact for you know follow up one-on-one interviews or something like that um but that survey will be a great opportunity to kind of start to identify some of the major uh topics or areas that you might want to go deep in user interviews with so this is something we'll all have to feel out for ourselves And it is a case-by-case kind of thing, but it's good to keep thinking about this as you're doing your research. Do you have enough information to act? Asking questions like that for yourself can be a good checkpoint throughout the process. It's probably a good time to address some challenges that come along with the research. Like? Well, bias for one. How can we make sure that we're doing our research the right way and not baking in our own biases. It's a good question for sure. Did this come up in your conversation with Sarah? It did, actually. She has a good reminder for us right here. Part of it is how you phrase your research questions. One thing I've been starting to do is asking questions kind of in first person so that the person also doesn't talk in kind of hypotheticals and maybe their own biases versus like what they think they would do versus what they actually did. So an example would be if you're researching travel and it was related to, I don't know, uh, holidays with kids or something. If one of the first questions in the survey was like, if you were planning a family reunion, like what types of destinations would you be interested in? That's a little bit hypothetical because it's like, what if? Versus if you ask the last time you planned a family reunion, what types of places did you look at or something? The point is like, if you can phrase the question with the last time you, the last time you bought a vacuum, the last time you booked a flight, the last time you did this, that's going to take the person back to retelling you that exact story of how they did that versus, well, what I might do. Okay, let's take one last break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. Before the break, we were learning about rapid research. What is it? How can we be using it as product people? And we just started getting into some challenges that come with it. Yes, and there are still some more challenges to work through, like 
What happens when certain people think that research means looking at your competitors and simply copying their features? Well, it's a tricky one, right? We we want to do competitive research, but that doesn't necessarily mean we should copy every feature of that competitor, right? That's right. But some people do get stuck in this conundrum. Let's go back to Sarah on this one. I have definitely seen feature chasing happen as a result of competitive analysis where the stakeholders and the rest of the team like are leeches and latch onto something and then must have that in the product you know come hell or high water and i think it's important if you do that competitive research to make sure you're doing it with enough competitors that you can say like these 10 companies all did this or three of these did this versus seven didn't and you can start to kind of see patterns. I think if you only look at one, then that's going to be probably a disaster. But I always remind people to reiterate that, like, you might be looking at something on a competitor's product, but you might be looking at an A-B test. You might be looking at some feature they haven't had to, they haven't had a chance to do anything with that they know is broken, but it's just like on the back burner. So if you do have those situations where stakeholders and et cetera are wanting to, you know, when Pinterest came out, the Pinterest grid layout was like running rampant all over the internet. But the problem was like, was that right for their product? Um, a news site, I think it was like the Today Show or something like that. All of a sudden they went to their homepage once and it was the Pinterest layout. But it was like horrible because news images are not like beautiful, like interior blogger images. Um, so remind people, you know, this is a great feature, but is it right for us? And then justify that, is it right for us? Is it right for us? That sort of reminds me of that banner from Office Space hanging on the wall, the one that says, <laughs> is this right for the company? Uh, maybe that's the one thing we actually can learn from Bill Lumberg and his team of consultants. It's a great movie. Definitely. Uh, anyway, there's another big challenge to address with all this. Okay. Well, my bet is that a lot of our listeners are nodding their heads to a lot of this, but some might be thinking, yeah, well, this isn't exactly going to sit well with my boss. Maybe that boss is going to say, we already have researchers. What are you doing? Or maybe they're hardcore Steve Jobs fans. And well, they <laughs> interpret that quote as don't talk to customers. <laughs> Yeah, well, what do you do in that situation? How do you sell this all up? There's a couple of things to consider. First of all, I think a lot of stakeholders, CEOs, founders, et cetera, have this immediate aversion to it because they think it's going to be six months and $40,000 and you know too much to commit. So first of all, I would say don't propose doing a massive research project, think of what is the smallest amount of research you could do to have the maximum impact. One thing to think about is try and highlight the symptoms of not doing research. So can you quantify or come up with examples that you can take back to those people that are being a little stubborn about research and say, hey, Last quarter, we spent this amount of time doing this feature, these three features, and we launched them and here are the metrics. No one used them or whatever the metric is. And then if you can also say, and then we spent, you know, X sprints redoing it over and over and over. If you can kind of go back and retroactively highlight some of those highlights, then that could help kind of get that buy-in. But also I would say, 
when you're deciding which research to do as your kind of minimum viable research project, think to yourself also, what could be the most important metric to that founder or stakeholder CEO? So if you're working for maybe an e-commerce company, don't say you're going to do a research project about like the entire site. If you know that um, checkout drop-off has been on their mind and it's really important to them, then use that as your kind of guinea pig research project to prove the value of the research. And then after that, that'll be a baby step to get them to say, okay, now we can go research product detail pages or search or whatever else is like the next big part of the site or experience. So be thoughtful about your audience here. You need to know what's important to leadership and you need to prove its worth. It's almost like you need to stop thinking as a product person for a minute and pretend you're something else. You have to think like you are a lawyer presenting evidence for a legal case. So for every statement or finding that you have, it's not enough just to say, uh, you know, the checkout process was too long or something like that. You need to provide evidence and evidence could be um, analytics. It could be quotes from a survey or from user research interviews. It can include heat maps. It could include video clips. It could include, um, you know, anything else that's going to back up that claim. Because without that, then that stubborn stakeholder is just going to argue with you all day long. But if you can have like a quote or a video clip that shows someone in a usability chest, like not clicking the big green button on the, you know, top of the page or something, then it's going to be a little harder for a stakeholder to dispute that because they might honestly look a little silly if this video is clearly indicating like no one can see this button. We learned a lot in this episode on rapid research. If you want to keep the learning going, you could check out Sarah's work at sarahduty.com. That's Sarah. D-O-O-D-Y dot com. There are great resources, links to courses she's developed, a lot of great stuff there for sure. Yes, and soon we have another brand new season in store for you. Season 11 of Rocketship.fm. We'll be getting started with it in just a couple weeks, so buckle up. It should be a good one. Until then, for Michael Saka, this is Mike Belsito, and we are Rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.